Morality, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the show, we have back on Max Kapczynski of Palto Forward. We're talking about a little bit about how the elections have been going in the uh, exclusionary cities of Santa Clara County and beyond. And what the future looks like. Let's just hear that. Yeah, welcome back, Max. Hello, everyone. Yeah, so, okay. Uh, Paul Alto, what happened? We, so the way, so there were five people competing for three spots on the city council. Because it's shrinking. Yeah, because it's shrinking, because Palo Alto had a weird large city council, and now it's shrinking because the, whenever that was, the thing was passed, and now it takes effect with this election. Um, And there were five candidates. Um, Two are, you know, Tom Dubois and Eric Filseth. Pretty much the nimbiest of the nimby wing of the Palo Alto City Council, and they both handily got in. Um, but the leader in the race was um, <clears throat> was to her first elected position, uh, Allison Cormack. Um, I don't know to she finished first overall out of everybody. She, I think she finished first. At least that's what it was on election night, and a lot of the votes were cast, and it was by a big margin. I could check again, but it's <laughs> not a huge endorsement of the success of of the council. If, yeah, yeah. Like it seems like. There was a big sentiment against incumbents, kind of in a lot of these peninsula towns. Um, but yeah, uh, Cormac came in first. We don't again. We don't know much about her. Her language on her campaign site is not. It's not very. Uh, it's not very transparent. Um, who knows if she'll be like a uh, if she'll be more pro resident or more open to change? We're not sure. But she ran a very popular campaign and she she got the most votes, followed by. Uh, Phil Seth and Du Bois, kind of the yeah the the two voices that tended to be against everything, tended to propose uh, sabotaging amendments to to most projects and proposals, etc. And unfortunately, Corey Wolbach, um, who was running for re-election, um, didn't he finished fourth? He didn't uh, he didn't uh, he didn't win the election at all, and not even not even unfortunately by a close margin. Yeah, Corey had a lot of people campaigning for him, both people in in um, pro housing groups in and around Palo Alto, but also just ordinary citizens, um, canvassing, volunteering, phone banking, and running advertisements. Um, they had a lot of good people, but unfortunately, I think um, there was just a big sentiment against um, not just incumbents, but also this kind of pro development, pro change um, policy in some of these towns down here in the South Bay. Well, I mean, personally, I think you know development is fine, but I think that. It can go too far. I think Palo Alto, it's just, it's become Hong Kong. It is already Hong Kong there. And oh, yeah. Well, the air is, certainly. <laughs> well, yeah. We're, 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 this is recording the day, one of the days. Who knows? It's probably going for weeks from now where, where the, it's, it's basically permanent uh, campfire fog all around you. Here's, here's an interesting, uh, this is a graph of people looking at all voting records. And Palo Alto is largely, you know, divided on housing. So you can see it's actually very interesting. This matches what I feel, which is Phil Seth. Is yeah. not nearly as extreme as Ku, uh, you know, Ku and Holman, uh, who's also now termed out and gone, right? Yeah, Holman. I think she, yeah, she was running for open space something or other. Well, I hope Professor Ville's going to survive. 
<laughs> uh, and Du Bois is not far behind, but yeah, yeah. that's 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 the whole crowd. But yeah, Koo is by far the worst. Um, <laughs> you know, if you know, if we're if we're if we're uh, talking opinions here, and it um, is just insane to me. It is insane to me that as far as if you develop something anywhere near your neighborhood, or if your spouse works for a company that's attached to Stanford, you can't comment on Stanford things. But if you're a realtor who works in Palo Alto, suddenly you can talk about housing things? Yes, in my like mind, if your job is a realtor, yeah. you should not be able to deal with housing things. Yes, that's your profession. <laughs> yeah. It's insane. Well, and I mean, the the concept of, of um, conflict of interest gets, I mean, it still gets thrown around in politics, but it's... As an accusation, I feel like it has less teeth than ever because everyone is voting in their self-interest. Absolutely, and I think that's part of the this thing too. This is the major asset it's, of every homeowner around here, and they are voting with it in mind. It is it's completely transparent to me. In my dream world, if you own land, you have a conflict of interest and you can't vote. Unlike the old, <laughs> old elections, only landowners can vote. I'd say uh, in, in good elections, landowners are the only people who can't vote. Uh, but or they must recuse themselves on any issues involving land use. Yeah, that's they can they can vote on whether you know pinball machines are allowed or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 pretty nuts. Uh, I mean, it's like the fairness doctrine. You know, it's kind of the idea of saying, okay, we should have some sort of fairness, but then you overlay all these very specific implementation details, yeah. which seem to kind of drift from the original purpose. And this whole yeah. conflict of interest. It, it makes sure that no one has a spouse who works for Slack if you deal with something dealing with Stanford, but a realtor <laughs> is serving happily dealing with land use. Yeah, gosh. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it's still noble sometimes, like the, the um, city council people. Like, if there is a proposal having to do with Caltrain or something, often you'll see that, you know, ex council member has recused themselves due to owning property near Caltrain, for example. That sometimes happens. I don't remember which council person it was, but that does sometimes happen. No, I, I, if you talk about corruption scandals in the past, having personal benefit and profiting from a thing and you and you siphon money into some contractor who you, yeah, I mean, that absolutely is a problem. I see more and more now that people diversify. Do you have to report if you own a mutual fund that has stock in something? Because I feel like that's much less a big deal than being a homeowner, for instance. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, so much of this, not just um, conflict of interest, but also even the concept of corruption is so driven by culture and precedent. Like, what does or does not get prosecuted? What does or does not attract media attention? Like, yeah, it, it really has fallen quite far um, to what people will make a big deal out of oh being a conflict of interest or yeah throwing around all this these accusations <laughs> about being in the pocket of developers I've for got, instance the implication being oh you're making money off of this you're they're paying you but mm, that got, nimbyism uh, pays for for uh, for its advocates as well yeah i've gotten multiple people and I, I do not i do not feel like i'm well read enough about the details to speak on it much who've come up to me about the cupertino and say oh have you heard about the corruption scandal and they're talking about the fact that developers have the council people in their pocket, uh. which I will just say, like, I I mean, it doesn't pass the smell test because if the developers did have the council, the city council of Cupertino in their pocket, they would not be acting the way they are. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> would like would, would Pinkertons be breaking up the uh, be breaking up the better Cupertino people yeah, outside? They're like, it's, 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 it's insane. And um, yeah, there's this. It's like. I suppose it is true, de facto, if enough people call it a scandal, it is a scandal, but it's laughable to see what people in their in-group or their bubble or their next-door group are calling and referring to as the scandal, but any member of the public or someone who is not from Cupertino will be like, what on, what on earth are you talking about? Well, it, it goes to the fact that we are more and more, and I mean, maybe you can say that it's laughable to think we ever were out of this, 
of all political scandals cease to really be tied to any sort of real concrete truth. And they are this weird, yeah. I mean, I mean, or like like materially large wrongdoing. Like they can be tied to anything, even incredibly tiny things. I mean, talking about like at the, the federal scale, everything from drain the swamp to QAnon type stuff. Like it's this <laughs> weird kind of you know you can't pin it down. There's just this entire idea that like okay, those people are doing corruption in this yeah. large weird moral you know mystical sense yeah and, but my guys oh they're not doing corruption they're you know they're there to sniff out the uh you know they're going they're going there to sniff out the real the real wrongdoers they're they're in it for the good reasons they're the good billionaires like etc cetera, etc cetera, right no i mean i'm i'm right now reading uh some some tennyson of like the arthurian legends the idols of the king and it feels very similar of just kind of like <laughs> like what you take a step back it's all these weird amoral battles where a bunch of dudes you know hit each other with Axes and they die, but like when you feel like you have your, what is the sense of of this right and the moral and the just passing of property from person to person, like, and that's worth killing and dying over. And I mean, in the same thing, yeah, people want to elevate their people to being the the, the holders of, of 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 all things good and just, and everyone against them is is evil. And honestly, yeah. I do not think even the people I think are the most ridiculous people around here. I don't think anybody is evil in any sense. I think they don't try hard enough. I think someone who is, you know, a realtor in Palo Alto who, you know, consistently, I think, fights against having the city grow. I think there's something gross about that. But I, I, I don't throw in the word evil very much. I just think there are systems at play that make people act worse than they should. Well, and they're being selfish. They're being selfish. They're... Everyone's selfish. But yeah, yeah, I think the key is, I, I, I don't. I don't hold my bar of morality high enough that being selfish makes well, you a bad person. I mean, sure, like you're never going to stop people from being selfish, but they've lost any kind of concept of a common good. Sure. And this is kind of this seems to be the pattern around the country. People are I mean, people are they are they're stressed, they're they're scared. There's the possibility of of loss. Maybe they already have lost a lot, or they're fearing losing what they have, so they hold on to it and and desperately try to keep the status quo from changing because they have only a vision of a world that can get worse when things change, not of one where things can get better. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the over the overarching moral vision of what if the rich did give away everything they had to the poor? You know, is that the only way we can get by? I mean, that's that's we're ostensibly a Christian nation, but that's not really. Oh. A, yeah, it's that, that's that's one thing that people are very willing to kind of look <laughs> to, to to avoid you know engaging with that aspect, and you know just when you talk about I'm mean, people were I I've, were was talking to people who were trying to speak to all sorts of people, including homeowners, about increasing tenant rights, and uh, people were saying like, "Well, I'm a homeowner. I don't care about that," <laughs> which is just this weird, weird you know pull up the gate mentality of yeah. just when you are safe. You have no need to care about who's behind you. Like, oh, yeah. And even if you might have benefited from it in the past or your people that you hold dear might benefit from it and you could be convinced of that in a couple minutes, like the knee-jerk reaction is what people take with them to the polls. Like um, my mom um, moved to New York when she was out of college in the early 80s and lived in a couple of rent-controlled apartments herself, but eventually, you know, you know, got got a successful career, married family, et cetera. Um, after decades of home ownership, not living in an apartment, being out of New York, um, her reaction to Prop 10 was, oh, God, no, we can't have rent control. 
because she remembers decades and decades ago that there were some people committing rent control fraud. Mm. They were subletting rent control departments from, for lots of money. And even though she benefited from it in the past, it has no stake with her currently. Like that's the that's her attitude, and it's not changing. Yeah. And that's what that's what she's going to carry with it. I mean, um, and I, sh- I assume lots of homeowners think that way. And, and in no unclear way, Prop 13 is rent control. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And and it's, and and it's it is the worst kind because it benefits the most powerful or the people who, at the worst case, would walk away with millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, let's not have some sort of imperfection, you know, at for people who are at the most desperate, but let's by, you know, no way are we going to roll back protections for people who are the the most well off. Well, and that's part of that's part of the vision that was that Prop Thirteen was sold under. It was it was Grandma getting kicked out of her house. Yeah, that was the the thing that I feel really appealed to people, and that combined with the huge anti tax sentiment of the time. I mean, that's the, that's the story everybody knows. It's the story everyone retells, and we could have a system that that doesn't exorbitantly benefit the rich and longtime homeowners and still protects the vulnerable. Just, but that's not that's not the system we voted for and it's not the system we're stuck with. I mean what what would you pinpoint the fact is that some, you know, fixed income senior citizen being uh in arrears on property taxes and eventually having their house sold at auction and, you know, to and either walks away with it or it's after they are in arrears for, for many, many years, because it have to be. Why does that evoke an idea of saying it's like, okay, you know, I'm up in arms. I'm now part of the Howard Jarvis army. But, <laughs> but talk about everybody who is currently suffering, pushed into homelessness, moving and commuting hours. Like, why does that not create the same kind of urgency? Because but, those but, are those are schmucks you don't know. That's not you know that's not your grandma, and you can't hitch to it. Your I don't think your everybody, resentment. If you, if you're not displaced, you know you have no idea what that feels like. You have no if you're not you know if you're kind of comfortable, you're not in danger of being displaced. But everyone was annoyed that their taxes were high, and they could hitch it to this moral story that they probably. In the seventies in California, you probably did know someone who couldn't afford their property taxes and had to so move the, out of town. Part of this is the normative idea that all of the normal people are homeowners. Is that part of this? <laughs> in the homeowner worldview, yeah, there's there's homeowners and then there's uh, the proles. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, and you talk about if I want to say where do you pinpoint Prop Thirteen, where's the epicenter? I would say it's Orange County, and Orange County is. Yeah, it's it's weird not to be a homeowner there. That that oh, is that yeah. is the culture. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's getting the you know, and I guess that's part of the point is like how do you define who is the normative in group and who is the irrelevant out group? And I think historically, you know, around here, if you're in downtown San Francisco, renters are an in group uh, to a large extent. But I mean, homeowners still matter. I mean, well, and they cut in groups and out groups quite efficiently as well. If you're if you're a disadvantaged or longtime long-time resident or a poor resident um, versus a tech worker, that you can draw a boundary there, absolutely. So here is, to go back to Palo Alto, here is one, uh, I, this is earlier this year, I just really love this in the uh, in the Palo Alto Weekly. Oh no, he's got the weekly up. <laughs> I couldn't find, I was trying to find like the worst stuff in this, but this is just something that amused me. This is from uh, March, it's, it's someone saying, one positive area that the council has come together on is their support for affordable housing. That's really all I want to say is, do you, do you feel that Palo Alto has come together in their support for affordable housing? Oh, <laughs> well, that's that, that goes back to the, the Quimby concept, right? It's just another flavor. It's just another flavor of nimbyism. You just have a long list of 
of how much we have to be doing for housing, how good it has to be. And the intent being fully that nothing can be built that meets all these criteria, but you can hide behind this disingenuous pro-housing rhetoric. And and we always talk about, you know, how glad we are that the Overton window is opening, that, you know, even NIMBYs are being like, oh, we have to care about affordable housing. But perhaps it may have backfired. And now they can just cloak their nimbiness because it's, it's just it's just talk. It's not action. There's no mandate for action. And if all that's mandated is talk, they'll talk and they're doing it. And they can even use it against someone who is pro-housing, someone who does vote for these projects. I do like the fact we've gotten to the point where you get, you know, people refer to the idea of white fragility. You get to the point of NIMBY fragility. That oh, yeah. People say, like, please don't call me a NIMBY. That doesn't describe me. Like, some people have written, NIMBY is the new N-word. <laughs> with the worst slur you... <laughs> that was oh an anonymous thing it was like post in seattle uh but before i, I laugh at seattle's <laughs> quote-unquote nimbyism yeah Come on, you got to get the pure uncut here yeah i mean it's 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 it, the peninsula is it's hard to people look on this like from the east bay and say like oh i didn't realize it was that bad in the peninsula and well when, i mean yeah i mean then they have a and they're the, the the cities in the east bay are doing much more than their share of construction and of, of housing people. And all the people have to come and work at their jobs here. Yeah. Like, they're, they feel like they... I don't... Maybe is, is it because there's there's more renters in the East Bay? Is it because the go- governments are more progressive? Is because the cities were already more dense? Well, I think you have to look because at... Because the incomes are lower? What is it? That, where, that, where are the flows of this? I, I think in, I think you can frame it largely as a jobs, in, a jobs housing imbalance. And you talk about the East Bay. They say San Francisco's not doing a chair... It has this massive economic hub, and then all the job, like all the housing need, is flowing out into the East Bay, and yeah. they have to support it for San Francisco. Yeah. And San Francisco, and well, the South Bay as well. San Jose builds a lot, and is uh, and it is has a has a has a rage, razor thin margin on their budget for it. Yeah, and I think if you look at San Francisco, they can easily say, you know, our own suburbs are like our towns or residents have always lived, and they're not keeping up with it. In fact, we are actually having to support their housing need up in the city, which is insane that suburbs are actually being a net deficit. To, yeah. And and I think if you look at where it flows down, just imagine it's like one big you know mountain. Palo Alto is the peak of it. And Palo Alto, I think if you want to look at where is the beacon, where everything is like, you can say everyone's pointing upwards. Like, no, it's not my fault. It's their fault. And everybody in the entire <laughs> state of California is saying, Palo Alto, you are the people who have no excuse. You are the problem. And what do they do? They vote out the one guy who says, hey, maybe we should build a little bit more housing. Yeah. I mean, if you took out your NIMBY compass, it would point towards Palo Alto, no matter where you stood in California. And if you stand at the University of Caltrain station, the compass would just start spinning around. Or yeah. at City Hall. Yeah. And I... <laughs> Or at the offices of the weekly on Embarcadero. <laughs> and, and just driving down the lack of urgency here. Like two years ago, I remember on uh, El Camino and Page Mill, there, yeah. there's a parking lot there. And they're talking about building basically- Big old parking lot. Yeah, an under an underparked. It would be largely for people using the local train station and commuting by bike or walking or yeah, whatever. it's very close to Cal Ave. It's a half a mile, quarter mile from Cal Ave. Yeah, people- People can walk and bike, especially if you stop giving them parking spaces. Yeah. But okay, they're about to do this, and you know, got 
you know, locked up in process. It was already locked up in process for a while. I drive by it now, still a parking lot. Yep. I drive a few more blocks. I don't know exactly what's planned with it. Uh, the old Olive Garden is now, it's just a dirt lot for like three years now, you know? Yep. I mean, and, the, and you see this all around. And, and again, we, we come back to Prop 13. Why do these dirt lots sit around for years and years? It's because someone is paying no money to keep them that way. It's it's not a burden on anybody to maintain this dirt lot. Yeah. And they, they, they would rather forget about it than let it get developed because such is the craziness of, of developing a project and such is the affordability of letting a dirt lot you've owned for decades just sit empty. So these these are, you know, years and years, nothing happens. Compare this to, in the course of a several months, people at the present hotel have been moved forward rapidly in their yeah. eviction schemes. Oh, yeah. You know, friends of mine are, you know, have to find new ways to live because the process moves quickly for that. If you, Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, in general, like, our entire systems of what is fast-tracked and what is slowed down, if you want to do anything to grow, that is slowed down. It's not considered a massive problem because yeah. you need to support, you know, Land speculation, that, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of state stuff explicitly is protecting land speculation. Court cases, the Ellis Act about going out of business if you want to stop yeah. being a landlord, much like the President Hotel did, that's yeah. supported by the Ellis Act, which is because a guy was upset that he was a landlord. And he says, wait, I didn't buy this land to lose money being a, a landlord uh, this way. I want to make money in other ways. And they say, oh, land speculation, that is in our blood. We support that. <laughs> that's probably the most Californian thing there is. Yes. <laughs> like you, like even in, in references going back to... Going back to the 50s, the 60s, everyone, it's, it's, it's a joke often in popular media about how expensive it is to live in California. Yeah. And, and, and the racket out here of real estate <laughs> development and everything. And, and then on top of it, it's like the, the psychological pain of having people build near your place. That is yes. something which is deeply protected. It is. It is. Like, <laughs> and it's enshrined in these, in these awful California city structures where you have like maybe a, an anchor city county. Los Angeles is, is, I suppose, is much better than the Bay Area in that regard because the city county is actually quite large, especially the county. But here in the Bay Area, we have all these awful little fiefdoms, and that line is quite conveniently drawn around these homeowners, their in-groups, and then the politicians who represent them and their interests. The problems that we have to solve and the, the, the methods for solving them go way outside the borders of Palo Alto or any one of these little little cities, but the people in charge of solving them and the interests that stand in the way are hyper-localized and can say no to anything. Here's a big question. What is the point of a city? <laughs> I, I wonder that every day myself, the, actually. I, I'd say the point of a city is this idea that, in general, if you allow people who get together to incorporate, they can serve each other in a local way while st- still serving the common purpose. This yes. is levy taxes, provide services, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of like a family, you know. If you say like it isn't doesn't make sense, we're all part of one giant, massive family in some large commune. It's actually useful that some people band together into families and they take care of each other. And doggone it, it works. You know, it is. It's why we're not hunter gatherers <laughs> anymore. Yeah, and and I think. And there's this idea, though, that, like, in general, your family should not hurt other families. <laughs> your family and other families should actually help each other. It's part of a massive ecosystem in which everybody gets along and actually, you know, works for the common good. Yeah, everybody well, looks out for themselves, but still in the big thing, like, if the Manson family is a family that is not good because <laughs> they actually go out and, and, and hurt other people. 
Well, they were watching out for themselves. And we talk about this for two minutes and we use the the key phrase, which is the common good. Yeah. And you see this all around the country, but like so many things around the country, NIMBYism here is, I find to be emblematic of just our worst tendencies and our worst structural problems. And it's like lots of things around the country. We've lost concept of what a common good is, what the government's job is, what taxes are for. Uh, how much power landowners should have, what markets should do, and what the public should do, et cetera. It's emblematic of everything. Well, it's like all sorts of things. If you talk about like corporations, why were corporations, limited liability, you know, things able to come into place? Largely because you know, if you could do this, you could actually spur things that the community at large would want. Things like, oh, it's good if people actually develop, you yeah. know, kind of an innovative small industry. Yes, and it, and that the people who invest in it are protected to some extent from exorbitant loss in the event that their their um their business venture, their gamble fails. Um but the pendulum has swung in every way to protect to protect holders, owners, capital, and in the spirit that, you know, this should be about uh that that investment should be in producing you know, goods that everyone can enjoy to to work through economies of scale, to employ people, make money, and then pay taxes that go into providing more services that benefit all of us. Uh, it, that logic is broken down at every level. People are refusing that it, at every level. I mean, these things are created as a trade-off originally, as, you know, let's do something which is not really good in itself, but it creates good things. And part yeah. of it, if you talk about IP, intellectual property, was largely uh, guaranteed, it's right there in the Constitution, as the idea is like to spur more, you know, creativity and, and, and discovery, uh, we shall protect patents and copyright. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a trade-off, but then you have things saying like, okay, if authors have natural rights, and this is the idea of this dis, you know, disembodied, you know, corporations are people, they have rights, you know, you have, you know, authors do have rights and they have the right to protect their intellectual property in an absolute way. I have an absolute right as a city to have local control. I have an absolute <laughs> right as a landowner to control everything around me. Well, and Disney has an absolute right, or, or Warner Brothers or RCA or Sony has an absolute right to, even after artists, illustrators, animators are long dead to maintain exclusive copyright, like, it just keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed to yeah, what is decades the, <laughs> after the author's death in these cases. What is the trade-off? What are you actually spurring by guaranteed late 20s IP to last an additional 20 years? We've stopped talking about spurring. We've stopped talking about a common good. It's yeah. become nakedly and blatantly the powerful and the owners and the holders protecting and improving their position at the expense of everybody else. Yeah, and I, I just like to feel like it's funny to look at places which are actually identified by the state as being like, this is not serving the common good. Uh, this is one of the last cities to be forcibly disincorporated. The city of Cali uh, Cabazon, California, a tiny city, although it has a beautiful dinosaur on its Wikipedia page. Was that San Bernardino <laughs> County? Um, that's a good question. It is in uh, Riverside County. Riverside County, okay. Yeah, so um, the it was incorporated uh, in 1955 because if you're incorporated, you could have a card room, and if you're not incorporated, you couldn't. So they wanted to have a gambling hub, so they incorporated. <laughs> not many uh, residents there, uh, but then eventually they got rid of the uh, the card room rule, and then the city was the city was uh, was struggling. So then they said, let's turn the city into a speed trap. <laughs> so almost no one lived there, but the people who did just up this large speed trap, just rent seeking behavior, and they you know and just largely were enriching themselves by making everyone else unhappy. And the state stepped in and said, hey, let's actually disincorporate this area. Good. That's what, 
That is what centralized authority is for. Centralized authority is not an, an absolute goal. It's not an absolute good, and it provides many problems. But that is what authority and government are for, is to protect the common good, to stop you know, rent seekers who are who are being a little too crazy yeah, and to, to balance it out. That's what it's for. But people have really lost sight of that. What does uh, Cabazon have in common Palo Alto? I would say that their main activity has largely devolved into rent seeking. What, yeah. what, what, ha- what they not have in common? This is a lot less residence in Palo Alto. Yeah. That <laughs> they don't sit on the most valuable land on earth. But it's weird. Like it says, okay, you know, you have, you know, a couple dozen people setting with speed trap, the rent seeking. Let's disincorporate this town. Let's say you make it a couple tens of thousands. Is this suddenly okay? Yeah. I would say, like, it's like if you're a big enough rent seeker, then suddenly you can't be touched. I'd say- Oh, exactly. Well, yeah, if you- <laughs> Too big to fail, yeah. Yeah. Oh, if you fix a baseball game, you know, you're going, you're going to jail for 20 years. But if you, if you engage in cartel behavior to keep land prices high, then you're, a, then you're a successful politician on either side of the aisle. The original version of Monopoly has this one rule in the cards. Uh, if you're caught robbing a, a hen house, like a hen from, a, from, a, from your coop, uh, you are fined $200 and sent to jail. Uh, if you are caught uh, stealing from the public good, uh, you are given a thousand dollars and you're appointed to the Senate. Heck yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, I mean, it's. It, the Monopoly old... was originally a, a made by a Georgist, wasn't it? Yeah, Liz like McGee. The Ur Monopoly, right? <laughs> yeah, so the Landlord's Game was the original thing. It was meant to teach us, you know, why uh, landlords are bad and why <laughs> land value tax would actually be good at doing things. And people, uh, it's the message is more like, oh, it's fun to be a landlord. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing people take from it. Well, and um, and when you, when that anecdote comes up, like, ooh, the a monopoly was actually, the, the, people always attribute it to a socialist, but I know better now. I know better, and um, well, I'll I, correct the record whenever that comes well, up. I mean, socialism is such a big thing. Everyone wants to say, oh, you claim it for yourself. I'd say... You know, it's the more that people squabble about infighting of like, oh, no, I'm I'm not this flavor of, of weird leftist ink group. I'm this <laughs> flavor. It's like, just use your common sense. I don't really care if anyone says they're a Georgist or not. But, you know, let's identify white rent seeking behavior is pretty bad. Well, and that's and that's why I see Georgia is I mean, that's where I see the problem. Not that, you know, someone called themselves the wrong flavor or whatever, but but that Georgia's ideas are important and more people should know about them um, because I think it's an excellent and for me personally, very informative to my politics, kind of to the, you know, adding to the, the, the whole bunch of leftist thought that I enjoy, specifically focusing on, yeah, on rent seeking, on the powerful holding things like land and even extending out to things like things like IP. It's been very informative to me to hear kind of what, why this is a problem, what has, what has happened throughout history, what we can do about it. Um, and I think those ideas should be should be spread and named and and um and discussed among people and talking about monopolies is a perfect conversation starter for people who didn't even know they wanted to learn about land value taxes and, and there's such a false you know dichotomy that is brought up it's like you must choose either that we become literally north korea oh, and you know and you literally have to like there is nothing except you know the government yeah. or you choose ex- you must be somalia it's like oh which side are you it's like <laughs> who is making like who is making people choose these incredibly dumb extremes yeah no, it's like well, I, you hear when you hear people talk about this, you're like, who's spreading this? But I mean, this has got to be blogs and the news and you know people's people's you know annoyed uncle. 
like people talk, people really talk about these crazy extremes in your forms of governance. Like either we can have the status quo or we can have a nightmare world. Like, no, I think we can have something quite pleasant. Thank you. Like we can have we can have price controls and decommodify parts of the economy without becoming Venezuela. Like we can do this. It's a, it's the same thing that everyone says anything like, oh, socialized medicine is a slippery slope to becoming the Soviet Union. It's like and then suddenly, oh, because we have this scaremongering, we're the only country in the world that still has this incredibly shambolic yeah. system of dysfunctional private yeah. health care. Every country worth speaking, I've got socialized medicine. Yeah. Sometime in the last 40 years, 50 years. And it's uh, we. It, Mm, 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 uh. It's like, oh, what do you want? Do you want to be like Venezuela? And yeah. It's like, it's like, okay, great. This is this is a very productive argument we have going on here. Yeah, but even libs who would claim to be the rep that to represent the future and the hopeful and the needs of the poor and working people will say, oh, well, let's be realistic. We can't, we can't just have single. We you can't. But that's that's based on nothing. That's based on a lack of ambition, a lack of vision, or maybe at worst, the allegiance to the insurance company and pharma interests that keep the Democratic and Republican parties going. And I guess here is the flip side of the false economy of the extremes is, I think, the trap of being in the center. If you're in the center, you can say, I'm sure everybody is fundamentally reasonable. All we need to do is everybody you know, state their objectives, and then we compromise in the middle Blah, blah, blah. Everything works. Centrists love compromise. They <laughs> love it. And I'd say on one hand, I actually fundamentally really care about good faith engagement, understanding why your opponents believe what they do and figuring out what to do with all this information and understanding that people are very rarely driven by being a demon. People are rarely, like, I woke up and I want to actually cause harm to people. Like, <laughs> maybe a few people. I, I don't think that's a massive thing. But it's worth saying, why are you driven this way? And if you're talking about, like, self-serving, rent-seeking behavior by landowners, I absolutely understand, one, why they believed that the system was serving this way, why they bought into it, and why they believe that they've been you know tricked yeah and what and what they're scared of what they're scared of losing yeah what they're scared will happen if their beloved city grows too fast and yeah and it's yeah yeah yeah. But i think the trap is in the end saying like because i understand what they're saying and they're not evil therefore they must fundamentally be right in some way and i would say in a lot of ways i don't think that that follows and i think it's very reasonable to say some people are just wrong you can understand why <laughs> antebellum south people believed slavery was the way of life it's natural and you know you can't take away this this way of life but fundamentally slave slavery is just wrong <laughs> and no Let's find you as a moral judgment. <laughs> Centrists and incrementalists and stuff, they, they 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 will bend over backwards to not make a moral judgment. Like, oh, well, everyone should have access to health care. They should. Yeah. But they won't condemn people dying on the streets or, or being driven into horrible debt as the moral disaster that it is, or this cost of living crisis as the moral disaster it is. They will... It's not serious. I mean... It's, yeah, exactly. Oh, I, it's beneath me to use a moral, appeal to morals. I mean, candidate Lincoln came in saying, like, I, you know, do not get me wrong. I respect the property rights of the Southerners. I'm going to do nothing to disrupt what is a very reasonable, sane system of, of, of private slave ownership. It's making a lot of people <laughs> money. How do you, but how do you engage with people who, well, okay, maybe slavery is a bit extreme because that can 
I'm sure, be motivated by personal evil. But um, how about just if there's millions of dollars at stake? And and that will always be the case until their power is removed. The power of the owners is removed or this crazy system is dismantled. How do you fight money <laughs> over morals if you these are, people? If you are trying to maximize your personal profit in being a landowner, a landlord, or any other speculator— and you are complicit with people being driven to homelessness and suffering and killing the environment, I would say that in no uncertain way, you are complicit with a great evil. And, yeah. I, and I, I do not hesitate to, to draw in great moral language. And people say like, oh, look, you know, my property values are increasing. Your property values are increasing in no uncertain way because people are suffering. <laughs> yes. Oh, and except when your property values increase, when your taxes are lowered, it comes at the expense of people less fortunate than you or projects that the that need to be publicly funded with tax money. And when you talk about if big money is involved, usually if a little bit of effort gets you a big money flowing in, it's usually because someone's getting squeezed or in most cases, a lot of people are being squeezed yeah. a little bit yeah. in a way that I think is, if with introspection, indefensible. And... <laughs> <laughs> and I would say the problem is people don't introspect enough. And I'd say if you do, you become some weird kook. Well, uh, money, money has a way of keeping you from being introspective. Yes. Because, like, I mean, if by the numbers, most people aren't billionaire property speculators. Most middle class people in America are barely above water yeah. property speculators. Yeah. And they and, can be convinced to do things. They, you know, they may stand to and gain And for your first 30 years, you're in debt. Yes, you are wildly <laughs> in debt. And, yeah, if you're a longtime homeowner, you... Want to see the status quo continue? If you're a new homeowner, you desperately want to see the status quo continue because if your home lowers in value, you know you're in real trouble. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this like zeal of the newly converted, um, and of those who are just hoping to not lose, not necessarily those who are hoping to gain. I can sympathize a lot more with that with the, with the new homeowners because they are they've got the worst end of Prop 13. They've got the most at stake. And the bank owns them. Like, I have real yeah. sympathy for that. And I would say if you are a tenant, I'd say, okay, here is the paradox here. And I think this is a paradox. What is the check on rents increasing without bound? It's the fact that at a certain level, people say, screw this, I'm going to be a homeowner. You know, that in, I think in a certain way, it's the fact that you have alternatives. One, you can move to a different place. Two, you can actually stop being a tenant if you can. And, and, and Yeah, and if the, you can. And the thing is, a lot of people can't, and historically, the group of people who are tenants is largely because they could not get on the land ownership ladder. Yeah, well, it's kind of a pyramid scheme too. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, buy in. You know, you'll you'll reduce your costs overall. You know, you'll get in early to your property will go up. You know, you can stop paying rent, and then eventually there's going to be some people left holding the bag. Yeah, and the people and you know the people at the you know the narrow end of the pyramid will be will be off grade, but the people at the very bottom, even if they're on, are still in big trouble. And are then they are the greatest in number, and they're the most motivated to see the system going because they'll lose it all if it crashes. Yeah, so that is the 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 great pendulum of being a tenant versus being a, a landowner. Is okay. What what determines one is is the credit market available to you that you can get enough money to move over to the other end. Yeah. And if that if that is the only limitation, one is that by definition can't scale to everybody. No, of course not. We saw it in we saw it in two thousand eight, right? That was the yes. very basis of it. Money was cheap, the market was going up, and everyone, you know, any any bank or 
you know, Huckster sold people properties they didn't need at rates that ratcheted up. Yeah. So you saw a big chunk of people on the tenant side try to move over to the homeowner side and the the system was unsustainable and they just lost. Yeah. I mean, they suffered a lot yeah. and they were actually playing the game as it was supposed to be played. Yes, or even ordinary families that only had one property and were just trying to get the living value. They weren't trying to play some market. They'd be happy with gains, but they just wanted to live. They lost as well. Yeah. So in general, the balance is either like, is the amount you're willing to spend on the property not balanced or balanced by the amount you're spending in rent? And then you can look online, they have like the rent or buy calculator and it tells you, oh, it's smart to stay a renter now. Oh, it's smart to buy. But even if it says like, okay, your rent is incredibly expensive. And if you're a home buyer, it makes a lot of sense. But a lot of people just can't say, oh, okay, I'll, I'll borrow $3 million. <laughs> Yeah, oh, exactly. And and the, the supply just isn't there. They're the same arguments, like we said, you know, oh, get out of renting, build equity, oh, your value of your home will go up, et cetera. You'll have, you'll have stability, you'll have something to retire on. But as the market's just gotten crazier and crazier, it's it's been really costly in, in these monetary, in monetary and non-monetary ways to actually go down this road to the point where, like, it it seems almost like a like a grift that I mean it, it was explicitly a grift in the 2008 crisis where these these homes are being sold and these mortgages are being signed to fuel this this these this speculative uh, craziness. Well, it is worth saying that like stability is good. It's really it nice to be stable. People and, want it. People and need it. If you're not a homeowner, you don't have stability. If you do, you do have stability, and yeah. that's that's part of the grand bargain. So in all sorts of ways, and I think this is the part of the paradox of saying. It is actually what keeps tenants in check, the fact they can actually say, okay, you know, I'm not signed onto a lifetime contract. You know, some of them at the margin could flip over to being homeowners. And that in some ways actually is a check on rents increasing too much. In a lot of ways, it is what sets the overall prices of rents. But if someone ever like says, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a homeowner, in a lot of ways, I feel they're making a immoral decision because they're kind of saying <laughs> they're kind of saying, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get my you know I'm gonna start speculating myself." Yes, I mean these 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 arguments kind of only hold if there's adequate supply in the market. If you can really choose freely and equally between renting and buying, and, and the third alternative, I should say, is you could be homeless. Yes, you could also be homeless. You could and, do, or you could do van life. And, and you know, let's not be. And that is a choice. People are increasingly having to consider seriously. Or you can move is, farther away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Really? Like that's that's the options we're left with. I mean, the key to the explosion of home ownership in the middle of the century, I feel like the key was they were building a lot of homes and they were cheap and they were building them all over the place and towns were growing rapidly. They were also building more apartments to keep up with it. Cars were becoming affordable for the first time. Interstate, you know, and just general highways were catching up to make the fact you could commute a lot. With uh, thanks to massive federal subsidy and federal investment. And this is partly a way to serve the big bulk of normal people. Because yes. like what is the normative way you live in the mid you know, the mid century increasingly stopped being people living in weird tenancy in cities and started being you live in the nuclear family, you know. And out- you drive to work. And you drive to work, which increasingly could stop being the downtown hub. You start getting suburban office malls. Yeah. And this becomes the new norm. And if you consider, like, the change as it spins up, it gave people a lot. But, like, when it reaches maturity, 
it reaches this absolute stagnation that you can see in no stronger way than what you see in Santa Clara and San Mateo County. Yes. This, this is the, the absolute calcification. Yeah, this is the apotheosis of, of, of suburbia right here. And it, 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 it's gotten to the point where it's, yeah, everything's, everything's you know, all the, all the colors are over it. It's bizarre world. People commute from the city to the suburbs in the peninsula in, you know, in a horrible car trip or an unreliable, expensive, slow train trip to get to their off, office park in suburbia. It's, it's the craziest thing. The, this is the absolute best case, and it has become this incredibly perverse feudalism. What is the worst case is when you make your suburb and then it decays. Uh, yeah. It's like if you imagine just empty homes, abandoned people cooking meth inside, and like that— Yeah, like in, like in the suburbs of Orlando or something, Subur- or Scottsdale, but not here. Yeah, suburbanized poverty— is the future for all sorts of people, and that is if you talk about the alternatives, you or know. suburbanized hyper wealth as well. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I really believe the fact it's a hard problem to fix suburbanized poverty unless you say, well, at least you have the alternative to go to a place that's better. And I think that we have an obligation to make room for people who are yeah. currently locked out, and we just one hundred percent are not because the entire system yeah. is structurally set to yeah. Well, Democrats and Republicans alike, they're like these 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 cities and towns that are poor have been impoverished because of neoliberalism, basically, because their jobs were shipped off, because the these the speculative bubble destroyed the value of these homes and left all these empty homes and left people without jobs. And Democrats and Republicans are like their response is, oh, there's plenty of cities with great economies with jobs. Just move there. And then they leave it. But it's up to these these cities when left to their own devices. I don't think um, the rich and speculators will make it unaffordable to live and the residents will ensure that that it goes in that direction as well. Yeah, I don't think it's wrong to say global trade has grown the pie. And that's true. But in the process it has absolutely destroyed communities. Yes, 100%. And, and if you can say, like, okay, here's the trade-off. Your community gets, <laughs> gets destroyed, your life is upended, but at least you have better alternative A open to you. But increasingly, they don't even have that. They yes. just lose and lose, and they can't even get into the yeah. places where there's now more wealth because yeah. the wealth is increasingly being eaten up by the people who have this rent-seeking stake. Yeah, who've <laughs> made this barrier entry. Yeah. Like, not just not just the affordability and the living here, but also the education that you need to get the white-collar job that, you know, l- gives you a modicum of stability in 2018. And that's that's another kind of... That's another kind of... um you know, addition of this barrier to entry, um, rent and rent sneaky behavior as well from colleges because they've gone up and up and up and up in price um, because the demand has been going up. But you know, the the, the colleges can adjust appropriately. But it's not like the quality of education has been increasing. Just like the quality of housing here hasn't been increasing either. But the price is just shooting up. And and we are seeing in in very clear ways the demand for migrants coming in to our cities for economic opportunity is increasing. And what do we do about it? People are treating it as an excuse for profit. <laughs> yes. And, oh, yeah. And do I treat that as a personal moral failing of them? I mean, to some degree, I think that they should be trying better to do, to be better people. But I think it's part of a systemic failure in the way that this is all set up. Well, and these homeowners, the the people at the lower level, the the kind of people at the broad end of the pyramid, I have I see them with I do see them with a lot of sympathy, and I think they're just their financial situation, their financial obligations kind of keeps them from seeing the the greater moral picture. I think it's the people at the top that are that are completely amoral that are that are driving this and I think I think it's the people at the top who who own lots of land, who have lots of influence in legislation, not just the local but also the state level, 
they have to be they have to be aware of what this is doing and if you know i would prefer to make them the the target of this moral judgment and to make the people who are at the bottom of the homeowner pyramid you know who have land but are you know deeply in debt and and still pretty miserable I think we can ally with them. I think it's entirely possible against those at the top who are really causing this terrible problem. Yeah, and do I want to demonize homeowners? Absolutely not. But I believe that we need to be spending more time looking at what are positive sums ways that we can actually make it so people can, if they're homeowners, don't just lose, but in fact can make it so more people can live, have stability, have good lives, and yet not have this weird investment scheme as the major backbone of what it is to become a normal homeowner. Yeah. Which is it would be like if you needed to put a hundred grand into Herbalife just to move <laughs> just to, you know, move in here and get a good job. People would become arbitrarily attached to it too, but you'd be like, no, it does not have to be this way. But it you would, have to sell people a vision of, you know, what the government can do, what they can do, that they have to trust and that they have to believe in. And it's nice to, you know, have you, your bank account and you know your hard work and job the only the only thing you can trust because it kind of has been proven that's the only thing you can trust yeah no i mean it's, it's very much the you know do it yourself you know american spirit of yeah you can't trust anybody you need to be you know even your neighbor you know <laughs> you need to be uh, daniel boone yourself and yeah you, exactly you, you need to have your personal castle uh but yeah, I mean, I think what would a better vision look like? I think community land trust is a large, if you look at limited equity arguments of effectively, you should have stability. You should have a home. You yeah. should have, you can even look, I'm not, I'm not a fan of suburbanized sprawl so close to our economic hubs, but a lot of people like suburban type, uh, suburban type living. And with, with community land trust, it is at least one method of balancing I guess the public cost of having big wasteful lawns. So if you're willing yeah. to pay for it, at least other people can, you know, have a lawn at least pay for other good public services or yeah. something. Or so. if we just increased property taxes, but then we come back to Prop 13. Yeah. Yeah. That's the the biggest and most universal restoring force economically for correcting land wastage, and we are exempt from it here in California. Yeah, I mean, it's if you look at what is equitable, it is basically ending the perversities of land ownership by adding land taxes, ad valorem taxes, which are made illegal in California. So yeah. it's just in, absolutely insane. Uh, here, Here's a positive vision. Uh, here's a vision from the League of California Cities. I just want to read through oh, this. Oh, lay it on me. Let's do it. Uh, this is uh, this is their their statement. I won't I won't read who who was on the thing at first. Whereas the state of California is comprised of diverse communities that are home to persons of differing backgrounds, needs, and aspirations, yet united by the vision that the most accessible, responsible, effective, and transparent form of democratic government is found at the local level and in their own communities. Oh, so that's um, I think eighty uh, percent buzzwords. The test has come back. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, there's no real uh, words in there. It's all buzzwords. I mean, I don't. I personally feel that in a lot of ways, my local government is not being effective, accessible. And if you talk about like Palo Alto, is this being effective to you know the the community at large? Well, it depends on what your aims are. If you're a NIMBY like the people writing that, the if an effective, transparent, et cetera, local state, um, excuse me, city government would effectively block housing would be transparent about their blocking of housing they'd be ruthless in their blocking of housing etc like that's that's what their goals are it depends on your politics do you feel that's that's correct to say that whereas palo alto has 
people of different backgrounds, needs, and aspirations? In that um, th- we have multimillionaires from dozens of different countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have millionaires and billionaires. Yeah, you know? billionaires and billionaires. Exactly. Whereas subsidiarity is the principle that democratic decisions are best made at the most local level, best suited to address the needs of the people, and suggests that local governments should be allowed to find solutions at the local level before the California leg- legislature imposes uniform and overreaching measures throughout the state. Yeah, they. Um, this really made uh, mm. who you're on before with uh, Richard Mellinger. Yeah, and subsidiarity. That's a Catholic thing. Subsidiarity. It's a Catholic thing about decentralization, saying that everyone should basically be operating at the local level. And I mean, you know, everyone from Catholics to you know to techies love decentralization. Yes, because it <laughs> lets the you know, it lets the people who have all the power get away with um, abuses of uh, authority, you know, imagine yourself what that looks like in the Catholic Church, and you don't have to imagine what it looks like in local city council meetings, abusing authority and setting all the rules themselves and being beholden to no higher power or scrutiny or compulsion to be correct their behavior. It is certainly a trap people fall into when they hate the idea of centralized tyrants is that you excuse the ty- like the fact that small yes. places can be just tyrannical. Yes. Oh, I mean that's like that that sums up kind of our political swing in the last 40 years. People were there's this this boogeyman of uh, of public tyranny and it has been torn down and replaced with private tyranny, and that's yeah. like, yeah, hyper-local private tyranny. And, that's, and it's kind of funny, like the policy government, in a lot of ways, is kind of like a local board of landowners. They are kind of a private government serving these local stakeholders with yeah. no obligation to the public good at large. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's why cities get annexed in the past, Yeah. because the greater city as a whole is more important. The public good is more important. <laughs> I'm confident stating that. As a moral, economic, and political, what, what should be political truth. I'm comfortable making yeah. that normative statement. But these people are fighting with everything they've got. And it's it's transparent. Local control is the most important. We have to protect it at all costs. The corporations should serve the people, and the people should not serve the corporation. In a lot of ways, you know, you have this large rent-seeking corporation being the government in no unclear way. Yeah, there's this awful... It, it, I mean, it, it, it is the government in that, you know, it is the, it is, it, it is does with, have. It is within the system of how incorporated cities yeah. function in the city of California. It is the, the government city. in that it makes and enforces the law, but it is a framework for these landowner cartel interests. <laughs> like, just because the, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, Mm, mm, mm. This is just, this is great. This is, I'm getting real fired up now. Whereas the California Constitution recognizes that local self-government is the cornerstone of democracy by empowering cities to enact local laws and policies designed to protect the local public health, safety and welfare of their residents and govern the municipal affairs of the charter cities. That's a nice one. I like the fact that, yeah, it's the only reason is to serve their people. Yeah, their people. (laughs) Their their interests. It's everyone should be branded, you know, and like say like, oh yeah, you have to prove the fact that you are a birthright citizen. <laughs> yeah, show your badge when you go in the town. All other people are of, of no, uh, who cares? Yeah, our city is an island. You know, we must repel the invaders. 
Whereas over recent years, there's been an increasing number of measures introduced within the legislature or proposed for the state ballot, often sponsored by powerful interest groups and corporations. <laughs> Sounds scary. Aimed at undermining the authority, control, and revenue options of local governments. and Revenue the options. I do like the fact that actually is a good argument against Prop 13. It does. It's a great argument it, against Prop 13. It blows up the local revenue options. It's true. <laughs> the Prop 13 was an overreach by the, was an overreach by the state to limiting the revenue options of the state. Yeah, local control, it's going to protect unless overriding it is going to serve the most powerful in your community. Then yeah. lo- then local control is actually, you know, well, we can get rid of it here. Yeah. Whereas uh. powerful interest groups and corporations are willing to spend millions in political contributions to the legislature to advance legislation or hire paid signature gatherers to qualify deceptive ballot proposals attempting to overrule or silence the voices of local residents and their democratically elected local governments affected by their proposed uh. policies. I heard, yeah, I heard homeowners are the most uh, most persecuted class of people <laughs> in the world, California homeowners. You know, they're, they're really, it's hard for them. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's, it is kind of the fact that everyone says... We are the good people, and the people we oppose are completely, you know, omnipowerful, you know, they're yeah. billionaires with unlimited funds. Oh, yeah, they're all billionaires. They're all paid shills. They're all not from here. <laughs> and I do like the fact that of all this, you know, if if you are seeing, like, what is going up against tenants, it is very organized landlords. Extremely organized <laughs> landlords, yes. you know, teaming up with pissed off homeowners who don't you know don't need a canvasser to come to their house they're already mad and they already know what to do that's what we have to fight against that's why they're so powerful they don't need donations to get people you know they the donation is you know they think about it every time they pay their property taxes or uh, pay their mortgage they think about that they don't need any other economic incentive to you know express their their opinion in politics but if you look at both boogeyman in this case the boogeyman you know against tenants being you know large powerful landlords and the boogeyman against homeowners being these large powerful developers which i think you could say at the very at the very largest sense if anybody has the power to break up local homogeny it is the fact that it has to be this is this is this is the big problem with politics right now is it takes a good billionaire to to, to hurt a bad billionaire. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. See, Prop C, uh, the Salesforce dude, is like the main guy behind it. And it's like this fact is, do I want to cheer on, you know, Sand Hill development? Is it like, oh yeah, let's yeah. cheer on Sand Hill. It's like I really don't want to cheer on some massive corporation. Yeah. But the fact is you know, they're the only people who are currently have the power to change any sort of, you know, homeowner homogeny. Yeah. And, and, well, and, and, and they're dividing tenants very effectively over this because the poor tenants are being told that it's the rich tenants that are the problem and vice versa. You know, the, the, the most poor and, and displacement prone tenants are, yeah, they're being told, oh, you know, it's tech workers that are the problem. Yeah. Even though. Divide and conquer. Yeah. Most of them are non-voters. Most of them are you know, you have no ability to be on the land ownership track. And they're told this from above by the landowners. Is, is it, I don't you know, want to just draw everything with too simple a brush, but it is something that the boogeyman on both sides, developers and, you know, large landlords, they are both powerful landowners in each case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and who, who is being fought against? It's the people who are landless in the case of tenants or the people who are small, small land landowners in yeah. the case of, of residents. Whereas powerful, oh no, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, 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 go ahead. Never mind. Whereas powerful interest groups and corporations propose and advance such measures because they view local democracy as an obstacle that disrupts the efficiency of implementing corporate plans and increasing profits. Corporate plans. 
and therefore object when local residents, either through their elected city councils, board of supervisors, special district boards, or by action of local voters, enact local ordinances and policies tailored to fit the needs of their local communities. Tailored to fit the needs of the local community. Have yeah, you? that's that's a good way of saying it. These policies and these politicians are tailored to meet the needs and wants of the local people, and that is bad. <laughs> it is bad for us. Yes, and it is it doesn't tailor the fact of all local needs a lot of people you know look at people in Palo Alto who are kicked out of affordable housing yeah there's a local need to have more affordable housing does the city enact an ordinance to say oh yeah let's let's actually create our own public housing it's like no they don't have the funding scheme and they don't really have they don't really have the interest because they don't have the will exactly these people are gonna be gone it's fine but if there is a political will to have a single-family overlay in this you know single-family home uh, this single-story overlay in in some R1 district, it's like, well, that are people you have to listen to. Yeah, the city can't... of Palo Alto, the Palo Alto city government is an HOA. All these yes. these all these peninsula governments are HOAs. Yes, that's all they are. And that's if, all they are. And if you are not served by the HOA, there is kind of an implicit backwater of saying you are going to be drowned out of the city because yeah. the HOAs largely treat you as an impediment to manicuring the lawns of the HOA. Yes, yes, they yeah that. Yes. That's pretty much it. That's what these boards are for. That's the, you know, there is a public good, and they kind of use the language of public good and of the interest of the citizens, but it it means the long-time interests of the homeowners. And it is very interesting. These same people are very, very prone to protect Prop 13 because... Like, and of, protest underfunded schools at the same time and blame tech workers for it. Yeah, yeah. The, the local needs of the community are to keep, make sure that you protect property values give them the highest quality of life to homeowners possible, and then also they should not pay for it. Oh, of course not. No, no, of course not. Of course not. Whereas public polling repeatedly demonstrates that local residents and voters have the highest levels of confidence in levels of governments that are closest to the people and thus would be likely to strongly support a ballot measure that would further strengthen the ability of communities to govern themselves without micromanagement from the state or having their authority undermined by the deep-pocketed and powerful interest and corporations. Oh, my ears are bleeding. This I mean, is horrible. Makes, if you are Palo Alto residents in your HOA, you would absolutely want to have yeah. <laughs> local power as local as possible because, you know, you got it and you want to keep it oh this is just demoralizing like i don't even like uh i just love the fact i love the fact so much that these are people who to the to a large degree have everything and they won't stop complaining about the fact that they are having anything to endanger what they currently have yes they want like this is yeah like how far we've fallen And, and there's some a real kernel of truth in there and it's part of this again the change in our broader politics, it's in the last 40 years, that the level of confidence in government is much lower the higher up you go. Yeah, People only trust them to make bad decisions, not good decisions. So they want them to have no power at all, and they want the status quo to never change. Because, I mean, just like anybody else, they don't want their cost of living to go up. Yeah, well, They don't want their commute to get any worse. They don't want, you know... They don't want the buildings they like in their town to be torn down, and those are all completely natural. But this is, but they're not an exorbitant privilege that is, that is against the common good. But to in order to have local governance, they are willing to give nothing up. Oh Star- yeah, starting with the fact they do not believe in funding their own place through the fact that oh, if you are benefiting from being a local landowner, you should at least pay your property tax, and that's not even on the table. Yeah, well, I mean, the longtime homeowners who are really getting away with murder. And the new homeowners, I mean, that's where the balance of money comes from, is the new homeowners who are then become 
have this this new and very serious kind of of zealotry to protecting the status quo as well because they're deeply in debt. And, the thing, and everyone says like we're the normal people who are just homeowners, but the fact that everyone around here has millions in equity. There's no normal homeowners around here anymore. <laughs> exactly, and the you fact have this that, massive nest egg that governs your entire <laughs> politics. Yeah, absolutely, and the and the idea that maybe we can make this work if we take away this equity from you. That's not <laughs> on the table. No, that, sir. That's not on the table. Yeah, either you have a massive nest egg, you know, pile of coins in your backyard that you have to jealously guard, <laughs> or you have a cross strapped to your back in the form of your mortgage that you just really, really hope doesn't get any heavier. Conclusion. Resolve that the League of California Cities should assess the increasing vulnerabilities to local authority, control, and revenue, and explore the preparation of a ballot measure and or constitutional amendment that would give the state's voters an opportunity to further strengthen local authority and preserve the role of local democracy to best serve their local quality of life. And let's read where this came from. The source of this was the city of Beverly Hills. (laughs) You know, uh, Heck yeah. which there is a guy on this who is the former mayor of Beverly Hills who is like accuses people of, you know, uh, being improperly uh, caring about affordable housing. You know, oh, yeah. He's you like know. the most woke guy on Twitter and he's the mayor of Beverly Hills. Oh, God. What's this guy's name? Uh, John Mirish, I believe. Mirish. Mirish. Uh, Mirish. Yeah. And he calls everyone an semite if they if they are ac- uh, accusing Beverly Hills of, of being too rich. I love so, this guy. This is he's great. great. Uh, city officials, Chote, mayor of Arcadia. Don't know him. Sounds great. Uh, Arcade? Oh, Arcadia. Arcadia, oh. like Joan of Arcadia. Uh, okay, not Arcata, <laughs> which is way in the middle of nowhere. Oh, I don't coast. know that. Okay. Emily Gabel Luddy, mayor of Burbank. Stephen Scharf, council member Cupertino. That's a local superstar who we've talked about in the past. Pew. That guy's great guy. This is uh, this is the dream team. It is. Alan Wapner, mayor pro tem of Ontario. I don't know Ontario, California. Ontario is an, it's a very industrial town. It's one of those LA little townlets that it's all warehouses and train tracks. I don't know what he has in it. I mean, I think Sacramento is trying to control Ontario. It's a yeah. Big, uh, <laughs> Lydia Koo, council member, Palo Alto. Woo! <laughs> my, my fave. Bill Brand, mayor Coup of... de gras. <laughs> uh, mayor Redondo Beach. Uh, David Terrazas, mayor of Santa Cruz. Michael Goldman, friend of the show. Yeah. Council member, Sunnyvale. Patrick uh, Fury, mayor of Torrance. Lauren Meister, council member, West Hollywood. So this is great. <laughs> it's I mean it is funny though. If you identify who are the most, you know, kind of bizarre members of local city councils, they all get together here. It's they really, do. It's pretty funny. They all get together under one roof. <laughs> you know. All to it's like it's like the evil league of evil of evil, really. It's Yeah. I, I oh, really this is, this is great. <laughs> I really enjoyed this uh someone put this together on uh on Twitter. It is a, is showing a screen cap of Seattle must preserve single-family neighborhoods, one of its most precious assets. And it's a shot of just normal suburban living. And then they're quoting below it, uh, it's uh, Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House, uh, saying, It's going to be a point where we're going to be catastrophe, and it's going to either require mass redistribution of the ill-gotten gains of the first world or genocide. And these are the first people who basically said, well, if that's my choice, I choose genocide. Yeah. And it's it absolutely is the case that you can say that there is no way you can look at the absolute systemic breakdowns of what is happening in the cities, especially at the nucleus, which is Santa Clara County, San Mateo County, and say, this is the future, what is happening to the most privileged yeah. suburbanization, and we need to do something about it. And the people who have the most are in no uncertain way of saying, we choose to do nothing because we are willing to give up a single thing. Yes, we choose to immi- we choose to immiserate <laughs> and honestly kill millions of like 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, make them miserable, yeah. destroy any kind of stability or hope for them them to raise a family. And this isn't just the poor. This is this is the, the new homeowners. This is you know, this is you know new renters. This is this is everybody. They're they're <laughs> destroying they're destroying their lives and their and their well being. Yes, and I don't I don't think it's very good to demonize people. But I think if you are complicit and fine with the system, anywhere from being the of saying. I believe in very gradual change <laughs> to I believe we must preserve what we have. You are complicit with the suffering that is going on with the many people who are housing insecure, who are having low quality life. There was someone uh, from uh, was, uh, this week talking uh, in uh, the Sunnyvale Housing and Human Services Commission uh, and her niece uh, couldn't afford to live there. So she yep. she and her husband uh, just a few months ago moved to Paradise, California. Oh no! Yeah, seriously. So that's 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 a true story. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> and this is part of the thing we're talking Ugh. about. Like people are moving out and out into the sprawl, into places that people Way shouldn't live. Out into the foothills. <laughs> I mean, I think part of that oh, is the fact that's that horrible. It's it. I mean, if it didn't burn down, I think it's a nice city, <laughs> and maybe it's nice yeah, to be secluded. What's left of it? Yeah. Oh my god, but that's just, just awful. Yes, it is awful. Well, and and watching honestly, like we've been the last week, you know. You know, listeners who are in the Bay Area, you know, for a week there's been toxic, choking smoke worse than Beijing hovering over the entire San Francisco Bay Area. You can't see a half a mile. You know, if you're on the Bay Bridge, you can't see Oakland or San Francisco. I have just all like the awful things that are going on in the, you know, in my neighborhood, the next town over, in the state, in the country, in the world, all like... To me, there's this smoke and this awful choking smoke, the debris of of the worst wildfire in our state's history, you know, probably caused by negligence, certainly accelerated by poor government programs, claiming hundreds of lives and and just causing in, enormous amounts of destruction, just sitting over us, this horrible cloud of our own mismanagement, <laughs> of our own short sightedness. That's just all I can think of in, the, in this last week. And. Yeah, the more you read, the more you hear. You're like, oh my gosh, we really, we really, we've made this bed. Really, we're we're here. We caused this, and we got to fix it. I mean, two things that are happening. One is people commuting into the areas from further and further out, and the fact is, not only are they living out and out into places that I think, by all measures, should be wilderness, <laughs> but they yeah. are. Oh yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, yes. we have wonderful wilderness that we need to protect, and instead we turn it to subdivisions. And then on top of it, for being you know, ostensibly the most woke environmental place in the world, we are fine with these commutes which are killing the world. <laughs> and killing us. It's killing us. Yes. And even and even these even even the people, you know, who want to see the status quo continue, like their status quo includes a horrifying commute, a commute of an hour, two or three a day. And, you know, these are the people that they just desperately want to cling to the present. They just don't want anything to get worse. You know, their commute gets worse by ten minutes a year and they just are they just are clutching onto it. And it feels like every time, so many times, there is what, when you have this, like, just low-level, you know, just festering, you know, uh, pain happening to the housing insecure or the suffering that happens to them, it suddenly flares up in massive fires. You know, we have the fires yeah. of California. You look at the Grenfell fires in the UK, yeah. you know, you look at the the ghost ship in Oakland. A yeah. lot of people are living, you know, desperately clinging to things because they have no normative good option to live in. Yeah. And eventually, when something like a catastrophe happens, it hurts these very people. 
And if you are the folks like, oh, yeah, but we're doing it the normal way. Yeah. We're just, it's like, it's. Last Friday, there also were fires in Calabasas and Malibu, but those got put out really quickly. I don't even know if, if, if homes were destroyed at all. That's a weird coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was the same day. Like, yeah, Calabasas, uh, Malibu, and Paradise. And, you know, you see these photos from, and uh, yeah, I, I saw some photos of, yeah, of Paradise being destroyed. And the 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 photos that they chose to take were those of they drove around town and just showed before and after pictures of all the fast food restaurants that were destroyed, all the subdivision homes that were destroyed. Mm. It just it was just this awful picture of yeah the suburbia that we built here in the Bay Area, but but miles and miles and miles away, and just yeah that and it, the fire moved in a very strange way, and you can see pictures of this too. The KFC or whatever would be destroyed, but the lawn would be still green because it moved in such a way and it, it tore down this this cheap, terrible suburban building surrounded by a parking lot. But it had just been like the building had been raptured away and the roof fell down on it without a burn mark on it. It's just just this this fire. I mean, I'm getting a little uh, I'm getting a little into the weeds here, but it really to me is just representing this just our worst excesses of governance and city building and the common good and compassion for each other and our, our, our how we think about and legislate for the environment it's it's really it's it's all there everyone all the worst of california is there in the paradise fire yeah i mean i i uh, spoke after the ghost ship fire at Paul's Day council mm. and at the time i was living in a converted warehouse <laughs> so <laughs> and i spoke the fact i didn't know anyone personally who was you know uh, who died or was was hurt by the fire but i had friends who had friends who died in the fire in oakland yeah. and i spoke to the fact like these are people who actually were you know uh, students here at Stanford and friends who have you know, moved increasingly to what is the fringe of you know what is a normal place to live, and they have people who they know who are on the real fringe, which is you know setting up illegal warehouse structures to yeah. do stuff. And you know when a place like Palo Alto doesn't make room to do things safely and sanely and grow to accommodate the need for people, people get moved to the fringe and they get hurt and they die. And that was the first time that the uh, city, uh, city manager, James Keene, came up to me and says, oh, well, let's talk about this afterwards. I guess, like, you know, when you actually have, like, you know, real blood. And he actually ghosted me on that afterwards several <laughs> times. So, uh, I mean, I'm just saying, but, like, and this is a couple of years ago. What has changed? Nothing has changed. No, it's gotten worse. <laughs> yes. And I, 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 the city of Berkeley and Oakland and Emeryville are cracking down on on their lax enforcement of fire code and building code. They're cracking down on these warehome situations. But that's their response to it. That's 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 a a lib centrist response is to just oh in in the case of something like this, don't attack the structural problem, you know, just just you know see people that you know are in violation that you can find or you know make the building code a little more restrictive or issue fewer permits. That's their response. Laws that uh, prohibit slipping under bridges fall upon the poor and rich alike. Yeah. You know, it's a very very fair laws that are going to end the problem of homelessness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's the basic gist of it is the fact local control. It's it is taken for granted and is actually brought up as a rallying cry yeah. among the people who have the most. Yeah. And it, in no uncertain ways, I like the idea of decentralization if done right, but it has to be correctly designed and administered and upheld to be just humane to everybody. Yes. And this sort of decentralization is the opposite of that. Well, and the public good always has to be the target, but in this case, people forgot about it long ago. Yeah. So... 
Uh, final thoughts, or is that basically it? You know, it's it seems almost like like I was thinking back because I renewed my EMB membership just today, and I was thinking back to you know where I was a year, a year and a half, two years ago when I got into this, and I was like, oh, just oh, just build more housing. Just that's that's just what we need. But just wading deep into all the powers that control all of this, all the awful figures that are making the decisions, and people you know that are being hurt by the system that are propping it up. I don't know why I'm still hopeful. I still, even and, after all these, I maintain hope. But like, I'm, sometimes I'm just like, what am I doing to and the, myself? The right way to do it, the right way, playing within systems, electing people like Adrian Fine and Corey yeah. Wolbach to, yeah. to change the system from inside. And I think it's clear based on the fact that Palo Alto structurally is never going to do its share. And the fact is, even when someone makes the most mild overtures to making things better, is like rode out of town. Yeah. <laughs> it's Oh, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah, with the with the local paper calling for their head, calling for blood. Yeah, that's that's the weekly's job. I yeah, mean, I, just I, I, annex them, annex them. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. Final I, thoughts, <laughs> annex, annex. I think every every person who is not a homeowner in Palo Alto, I think, is reasonably should say like, oh, that's a very reasonable thing to do. Let's disincorporate Palo Alto. You yeah, know? disincorporate, annex, consolidate, ward of the it. state, remove yep. the zoning power. It's, yeah. I mean, it is the only thing. Like, I mean, yeah. So uh, that's 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 basically where I'm at. That's where I'm at too. <laughs> yeah, and I think and, I think a lot of EMBs are there as well because. These elections did not go great in any city well, for mean, for Yimby candidates. And you talk about like the East Bay, like East Bay, it's actually going better. And the fact that's is, true. but yeah, they're downstream of Palo Alto. Yeah. They need to look up point of the fact it's like no matter how well we clean up our mess here, we're never going to be able to even have control of that because local control is this big castle wall that is stopping them from having accountability to yeah. the rest of it. Well, and getting a bit of you know getting good con- consistent construction in the East Bay. Now people, I feel like maybe in those places where there are construction, are kind of normalized to it. Oh, construction, you know, big buildings coming up. You know, the more of it you see, the more okay you are with it. It's positive feedback. But here in Palo Alto, we see less and less of it every day, less and less change. So people are becoming increasingly allergic to change. Yeah. Like you got to just, you got to get over the hump. You got to fight these people, you know, at just right at the, right at the cutting edge of where they want to abuse their power, and you have to fight them there. Hearing construction noise, having any change the way traffic you're in operates, that is something which people are very, very sensitive to. Having increasing prices, which are making affordability absolutely a joke around here, that is something that no one is very sensitive to, because if you are the people in no power... No homeowners, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're the people in power, you have no real reason to care about affordability. You live at a fixed price. Yeah. Your property taxes do not go up. Your mortgage does not go up. It is high, or maybe maybe it's low. If you know, if you're a longtime homeowner, your property taxes are very low, but it's fixed. Yeah. And you just want to see your other, you know, quality of life things. You know, uh, hopefully, just go nowhere bad, and you'd settle for nowhere at all. Like people who, people who commute, and you know, take Willow Road to cross the Dumbarton Bridge or whatever. I've heard them complain about the improvement to the off-ramp that they're making, the improvement to the bridge that'll reduce traffic. They're complaining and complaining and complaining that, oh, for the past six months. But you have to invest in change. Yeah. You have to invest in change. You know, it's going to get worse before it gets better, almost certainly. But it's trust. It's trust and vision and 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 allying with a broad group of people to work for the common good. That's what we have to do. And that's why I hesitate to demonize morally 
you know, this whole group of people because I don't want to declare war on them. I want to work with them. I want to, I want to make the fewest people as possible the target of moral indignation and and um, and pun- and punishment for their for their crimes, basically. But I want to ally with as many people as possible. <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, I think that f- more people deserve mercy, and I love the fact that more people yeah. should have the highest quality of stable you know, great living as possible, the people who have gotten the most charity are the people who've been around for 40 years. Oh, yeah. Are, they're, they're basically wards of the state, and yeah. yet they are the people who I think have this... It's It really depresses me that people who have been given the most become the meanest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like people who have nothing, people who, you know... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's the... And that's that's the mindset that suburbia creates. You know, you're the master of your own little fiefdom. Everyone else is a barbarian. You just become the most evil, shriveled up, horrible person. <laughs> and you know, the real punishment for these people is being them and having their horrible lives and being their just their horrible selves. But you know, the city is getting worse while they get their way, and you know, we got to turn against them. I just hate systems that make people meaner than they should be and i yeah. see that all over the place but yeah. i think it's a good place to wrap it up so thanks for being here for max kapchinski yeah thank you for having me on it's uh it's always wonderful to come down here and uh and you know talk about the biggest problems <laughs> in the world get get, get uh, it's better than therapy yeah. oh it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> this has been an episode of the henry george program max kapchinski of Baltimore was on and we talked about exclusionary communities and <laughs> what can be done you can find this episode and others at seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Case Issue, Stanford. <laughs> <laughs>